0: Hi, I'm Iker Shigufa Chima, your host for the New Books Network. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Asim Sajad Akhtar to talk about his book, *The Struggle for Hajjumanee in Pakistan: Fear, Desire, and Revolutionary Horizons*, published by Pluto Press in April two thousand and twenty-two. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, Could you please introduce yourself to our audience?
1: As you said, my name is Asim. Um, I am um, both an academic and also a political worker based in. Uh, Islamabad in Pakistan and uh, yeah I mean I guess we'll we'll move towards why I wrote this book and how that brings both of these sort of these two hats that I wear together.
0: Great awesome so what inspired you to write this book? Where did the idea come from?
1: In in essence yeah I mean um, I have been Politically active uh, with left circles in Pakistan for the best part of you know over two decades. Um, And so, in a sense, a lot of my academic work prior to this is also uh, if not directly, indirectly, fused, you know, sort of academic interests or scholarly interests with with sort of the 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 political engagements that I've had. Um, This book is in a sense a more direct assertion or, you know, sort of really speaking to that particular question of how to think about um, what what I call the political in Pakistan um, with a view to um, also articulating or being able to think or being able to offer something resembling, you know, some kind of skeletal political theory, um, which involves a doing of politics as well, rather than just Sort of, you know, like big man analysis, or sort of the standard, often the standard themes like civil-military or or other similar themes that dominate, um,
0: you know, scholarly discussions. Right. So, how would you introduce this book to our audience?
1: In a sense, I, I, the book, you know, not 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 in any sort of um, exhaustive way, but I, I do try to take sort of a global view um, and then zoom into Pakistan so i'm i'm starting from the premise that we live in a moment where um as i think a lot of the the literature the critical theory, theory literature in, in in western um circles has documented since the financial crisis that we live in a moment where there's a there's a you know crisis of imagination also a crisis of liberal politics or institutions of mass representation under uh, contemporary capitalism, and that is reflected in the trumps and Bojos and you know now Georgia Maloney's and so on and so forth of of the of the classic so called democratic western polity and so you know using that as a starting point, I'm saying, well, sure, that's true, but really, we ought to be thinking about or you know thinking about this problem um through a post colonial lens because that's where most of the world's people are that's where the crises both economic environmental and then political are more acute um so so in a sense in essence i'm trying to, to use pakistan not as a case study because i don't think there's enough there for it to really be a meaningful you know theory from the south sort of story um but i'm definitely constantly going back between pakistan's specificities and sort of this global moment and then you know, more specifically, also bringing in what I think to be the more um, um, relevant comparative context, or not the mo- not the, the relevant, but the, the the most similar context, which is the rest of South Asia and then sub-Saharan Africa. So yeah, in a nutshell, um, it's a story about Pakistan, but also a story about the world at large.
0: Great. Thank you for explaining that. So your work often engages with hegemony as a concept. What makes it a useful concept uh, for a critique of global and local structures? And how has your approach to this concept or your understanding of it changed over time in Pakistani context?
1: Yeah, hegemony, is, as I'm, I'm sure at least some of your your listeners will know, is... is, is um... It's traceable to to Gramsci. Well, actually, in in truth, it started with Lenin, and Gramsci borrowed the concept and sort of developed it um, in, you know, substantively. And and of course, very briefly, some somewhat simplistically, basically, the the concept simply suggests that any system of domination persists um, not just because of force or coercion or violence, but also because of of consent, some form of. Shaped political subjectivity of of you know the ordinary person that that or at least a significant critical mass of people that 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 allows the or that gives the system some resilience because people consent um to to the rules of the game i this is you know I deployed sort of concepts of hegemony and then also. Common sense and historical block in in an earlier book that I wrote which is called the politics of common sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in a sense, I'm I've, de- I've I wouldn't say I've, I've in terms of theory that I've developed those, the the particular concept of hegemony mm-hmm. in any in substantive theoretical direction in this book compared to my previous work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely what I've tried to do in this book is to sort of open up new ways of thinking about how hegemonic apparatuses, what Gramsci would call a hegemonic apparatus, um, functions, and in particular, how the digital is now um, such a big site of of what, as the book's title suggests, the struggle for hegemony takes place. So the struggle of competing ideas and conceptions of the world. um, There's a dominant one, um, which is, as I said earlier, in this present moment, is largely reactionary. Based on some mythical other paper tigers, um, hate conspiracy. You know, um, the right wing depicting itself, or right wing iconoclasts depicting themselves as great saviors of the people. You know, there's been enough written about right wing populism in recent times that that will resonate with with some of your some of your listeners. Um, but for me, what was missing in the story, especially for non Western contexts like Pakistan, was how this is playing out through the digital terrain, or the sort of an emergent hegemonic apparatus,
2: mm-hmm. which,
1: in a, in essence, allows or is now made every single individual so-called user of digital platforms also a producer or reproducer of hegemony, um, at least the dominant hegemonic conception. Um, and then, you know, part of the book is saying, well, how can we on the left? Um, both deploy these technologies and also not sometimes deploy them or be more critical about our usage of them to to think about what our future could look like if, if we ever do want to transcend this hateful othering that, that is pretty much um, commonplace across the world.
0: Thank you. So um, in this answer and in your book as well, you employ terms like middle class, hegemonic middle class, and middle class aspiration. Could you speak more about that? Also, at some point in the book, you talk about how um, you also wanted to challenge the uncritical use of the term global middle class. So how do you compare the Pakistani middle class with the global middle class in this um, situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, the middle class has been talked about a lot, right, in the age of globalization, you know, the the, the the sort of mythical stories of India and China as we know have a lot had a, a lot of global currency you know this hundreds of millions of strong middle class rising through the ranks and you know breaking out of poverty etc cetera, etc cetera. of course there's there's certainly some truth to those to those depictions but what I am doing in this book is actually not I'm not actually using or actually even Claiming to talk about the middle class, I'm actually um, repeatedly I try. I hope it's clear, but I try to suggest that this is an ideological category, and okay. I am interested in thinking about this as an ideological category. That is, in some ways, the object of my analysis. So I'm tracing hegemony and these digitalized hegemonic apparatuses through the subject of the the so-called, and I say so-called okay. middle class because the The mythical story of this rags to riches rise of you know hundreds of millions of people is is both true but also untrue right and that that's part that's the part that I'm wanting to to highlight that the untruth of it right the the dark side of of neoliberal globalization which of course is no longer as as hidden as much as it was up till let's say at least in western polities until the financial crisis, and frankly speaking. It, it's only hidden in our political and intellectual mainstream in countries like Pakistan, um, if if you were absolutely stubborn and refused to look, yes. because otherwise you could see the ruins of neoliberalism everywhere, right? You know, land grabs and grabs of nature, as as we as we've just experienced this summer, um, the rapacious effects of, of 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 climate change and and, and capitalist development writ large. Um, and you know, even India, for instance, we've there's been again in the news in recent days, and I've mentioned this in the book as well when, when I finished the manuscript a year ago, that through COVID, like up within a year or so of the pandemic, like hundreds of millions of, of Indians literally fell through the cracks and were back below the poverty line. So this whole idea of the middle class is really what I'm wanting to to interrogate, to critically interrogate, rather than map The middle class per se, right? Rather than say, okay, this is what the middle class constitutes, these are its fractions. I mentioned some of that to the extent that it aids the argument, but certainly not an exhaustive mapping of the middle class. It's more like a critical um, deconstruction of middle class ideology.
0: Yes, definitely. And I think uh, that is very clearly outlined in the book as well. So um, how do you view the uh, middle-class hajimony in terms of the dialectic of fear and desire and its relationship with state nationalism in Pakistan?
1: Yeah, I mean, briefly, just before I I sort of articulate that, it might be useful for me to just clarify that I, I start initially in the book by noting that you know, insofar as middle class ideology is is one of the major pegs of contemporary hegemony,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and as you say, I, I sort of use these conceptual terms of fear and desire to, to articulate that. But there's a long piece, There's a long genealog- genealogical sort of story here, right? Sort of this idea again, a rather misleading idea of the middle class. Has, has persisted. Has been at the centre of the political in countries like Pakistan since the colonial period, right? Macaulay's children, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the Indians in colour, but but you know, British and white in taste and and sort of civilizational outlook, right? So the the proverbial kala sab who replaced the dora So there we have this obsession with sort of so called middle class values of rule of law and anti-corruption, and these sorts of pegs and, and rhetorical devices recur in Pakistan's history, and not just in Pakistan's history, in Indian history, in in most and many post-colonial states, right? Because they all, you know, the Fanon's, this tortured native intellectual, was he going to be looking upwards to be like the white man, or was he going to look downwards to be with his, his or her people, as the case may be? So, first of all, there's a long history, and that history recurs, in a sense, in the contemporary iteration of, of middle-class Germany. What is unique about it, as I said, well, A, there's it's digitalized, B, in countries like Pakistan, um, and that's one of the major other claims I make in this book, that at, demographic or age is a big category that we must pay attention to, because... Um, you know, for instance, here out of, out of a population of two hundred thirty million, about sixty-five percent are under the age of, of, of twenty-nine, and that's that's huge youth bulge, right? Um, so we have this huge, burgeoning young population, increasingly connected through digital means, um, and attracted to a dominant sort of hegemonic um, construction, which as it features these two pegs, fear and desire. So fear is you are more loyal than the king. You you sort of ascribe to the standardized tropes that have existed in Pakistani history about, you know, the immutability of the Muslim nation, um, the, the, the need for a national security state to ward off your proverbial enemies, always surrounded by your enemies, India and Afghanistan and God knows what else. Um and and but also at a molecular level. This is not just some broad, you know, idea of state national. It also plays out molecularly. You're always fearful of, of the other who is in your immediate, you know, like someone like yourself who is competing for the the upward mobility that you want, or someone who's different, a woman mm-hmm. who who doesn't conform to the standardized idea of, of Pakistani honor and morality, a religious minority who doesn't, I hate the word minority, but, a you know, someone hailing from a different, you know, religious affiliation, who doesn't, um, you know, who's not the mainstream sort of, um, partic- you know, particular versions of Sunni Islam, uh, an ethnic group that is, you know, in the remote periphery that can easily be branded as sort of the, the epicenter of terrorism as we saw throughout the early two thousands.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and then there's so there's fear on the one hand and then there's desire. Desire is upward mobility, it's conspicuous consumption, it's malls and plots and gated housing schemes, it's leased cars, all of the things that you know we saw with you know the success, so-called success years of neoliberalism in in, in most countries of of the non-Western world, where cheap credit um you know, underlie these huge consumption booms and speculative bubbles in real estate and stock market. Um, so yeah, so in a sense, um, there's a there's an older story. You know, tropes that of you know rule of law and corruption and and, and rationality and classic colonial sort of modalities of the the poor educated masses and the enlightened sort of middle class and and, and that playing out in In the contemporary period, you know um, under under the the broad structural conditions of neoliberal accumulation.
0: Thank you. Uh, so your book, and you know your answer to you talked about the number of youth in Pakistan um, in the book even though it is more descriptive than it is prescriptive um, still would you like to speak a little to the future of youth in Pakistan how do you view that what do you understand of it or well I
1: mean that part that's the other hat you know um, of being politically active and working with young people for donkey's years I mean I'm also still quite young but that's a different matter um, but really young people um, and sort of convincing them to be part of, you know, or to, to, to um, you know, sort of to be part of, of a progressive tradition of politics, which does have a long history in this country, albeit very suppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in a sense, what I'm saying is that the, the immediate, the present moment is certainly not one where we can be feel very optimistic um, sort of like, in gramscian terms it's the pessimism of the intellect that prevails in our present moment but there is always a basis especially for people who are politically active to 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 also you know to 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 counterpose the pessimism of the intellect with its dialectical other which is the optimism of the will and to imagine that there will be and there can be um sort of again a hegemonic conception which is distinct which is um which 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 is which is not based on and and I think to an extent what I'm trying to argue is that neoliberalism is a you know in the west this is now an established fact that neoliberalism has had its had its day right and I think the rise of of the far right is basically it's on the ruins of neoliberalism it's because the liberal center um you know the blairites and the clintons and you know subsequently the obamas and the um, and so on and so forth were 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 sort of holding up a fort that was ultimately was 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 in a state of collapse. Now, what's happened in our part of the world is that you know we've seen something not dissimilar, right? Where you have like the centre, the centrist parties, which keep coming back to power on on the on the back of of military support, which is like the People's Party and the Muslim League, and so on and so forth. And then because this is a system that continues to lurch from crisis to crisis, Mm -hmm. um, then you see the emergence of so-called a new player, a third force, right, who depicts himself as the man of the people. So our Imran Khan is like the parallel to like um, the far right um, in other parts of the world. But so what I'm basically suggesting is, well, A, we have to acknowledge the story and sort of swallow this bitter pill and not beat around the bush. Let's not pretend that this is there's no organic element to this. There are young people
2: mm-hmm. who
1: have grown, come of age under the era, and under neoliberal globalization, they are connected, and, and they are moved by and support, and they support individuals like Imran Khan. Not all of them, not universally, but a significant enough segment of our young population, that we must sit up and take notice. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a foregone conclusion that that is the way it will always be? No, and that's the part of it that I'm also what you call the prescriptive, which mm-hmm. I would, call, uh, you know, the the revolutionary horizon part of the story. Um, even if it's not a very concrete idea or conceptualization of revolution in the way that we did in the twentieth century, right? Which which was in a sense quite mundane. Mm-hmm. But what I'm arguing is for is for us to think in terms of longer term or medium term horizons. And part of that actually includes looking back into our immediate, not so distant past. Mm-hmm. You know, a past of of significant, you know, internationalist sentiment in the era of decolonization and immediately afterwards. And that even in a country like Pakistan where the left was criminalized, that that existed, you know, in the sixties into the seventies, there was a very strong organic left wing upsurge that involved, you know, the proverbial peasants and workers of the world, but also young people in general. Um and that is a history that I think a lot of young people in this country are simply not glued into, right? They're Zia's generation. So their their world starts from a worldview that was shaped um by, you know, the the dictatorship and what followed. Um, a very cynical patronage-based form of politics on the ground, and then this very broad, civilizational Muslim nation versus the rest of the world, you know, more generally. And Imran Khan embodies that. You know, Imran Khan doesn't depart from that. So in essence, it's about deconstructing the, the immediate past and the present, reviving... Um, some of the imaginaries that existed in the age. And and I think it's interesting, right, with the climate change, and this might be slightly off topic, but what's happened with the floods and the upcoming COP27, right? That's what at least some dissident voices are now saying, right? Like what we now, once we call the third world, and now people call the global south, you know, unless there's a coming together, unless there's something bigger that we imagine, that we, we aim for, then you can cry yourself hoarse talking about reparations and, and so on, but it's not going to happen. Um, and that applies to the story within a country that applies to stories across countries. So, yeah, so I mean, these are the sorts of horizons and imaginaries that I sort of um, bring to the fore in, in the later half of the book.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, at one point, you talk about Pakistan's space in the global imaginary in comparison with India and Bangladesh which I found fascinating. Uh, Could you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was just a reference to that, you know, in the early 2000s, again, like what I would say is the high point of sort of the global neoliberal ideological offensive, you know, there's global middle class and so on and so forth. I mean, at that time, in fact, early 2000s, it was India and let's say Bangladesh. So Bangladesh has this, you know, very... For me, highly overstated, you know, feminized textile manufacturing miracle story of women being at the forefront of, you know, a society that is exporting and that's succeeding. Um, On the other hand, there's India, this pharmaceutical hub, this hub of like, you know, the Bangalore software sort of miracles and all those miracle stories, right? Mm -hmm. Of how this middle class can be feminized, it can be whatever, but it's basically... That Again, that middle-class ideology story. At the same time, Pakistan was, of course, hub of global epicenter of terrorism and, and, you know, this this problem child that sometimes is with the West, sometimes is playing a double game with the West. And that was, in fact, that was sort of the scholarly fashion to view Pakistan through that lens. But what I was actually trying to suggest through, basically, through pretty clear and present statistics is that Pakistan was also having its you know, was, was a neoliberal economic haven where again this 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 so called middle class was being um was was in the sense being produced by by you know trade financial liberalization, the cheap credit, by real estate bubbles, you know, by remittance money from rich Pakistanis coming in um from abroad, which of course was a big trend when right after 9-11, when a lot of money out west was, was in danger of being held up or or sort of checked and, and inspected. So I was just saying there's a part of the Bagsville story that was underspecified, which was not that dissimilar to the India story or to the Bangladesh story. In the event, all of those stories were overstated, right? The India and Bangladesh story was also overstated. I mean, Bangladesh, right now, in the last couple of months, has been, you know, in... in not not like Pakistan, but not dissimilar to Pakistan, the state of free fall, right? They've been going to the IMF and and having to 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 ask um for money as well. So in a sense the you know even the, the the highly publicized success stories have have run into all sorts of you know the India story of course the classic one of hundreds of thousands of people walking on foot when the lockdowns happened. I mean these are this is a story of how that same very glam and glitter neoliberal story sort of collapses on its own head when, you know, those very volatile logics of accumulation um, are interrupted for whatever reason. And so, yeah, so I was just noting that, you know, what the mainstream tended to focus on in Pakistan was, you know, reflection of these security-centric discourse that dominated scholarship rather than the fact that no such similar story to India and Bangladesh existed. It did exist. People just didn't focus on it.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Um, How do you view the role of thinkers and scholars in a climate where dissent or resistance is increasingly more important, but also more difficult?
1: Well, I mean, certainly um, I I think it's important. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I... I write about this in the book, um, you know, about the very idea of intellectuals, and this is, of course, something that Gramsci and Fanon, both the, the two theorists that I, I come back to, and sort of try and suggest their ideas are incredibly relevant to our present moment and to the, you know, foreseeable future. Um, and, the, and the question, the ways they think about intellectuals, is is is, is basically what I dwell on at, at length at different points in the book. Gramsci, of course, said everyone is an intellectual. You know, he challenged the very idea of the fact that insofar, or even everyone is a philosopher, insofar as we have conceptions of the world and we think about them and we act upon them, Mm -hmm. um, whatever the constraints may be. So I take that idea to its contingent limits. Um, And then Fanon, too, as I I mentioned earlier on in the conversation, And of course, his, you know, for him, um, the native intellectual, the tortured intellectual, the intellectual or the... You know, the Macaulay's child who turned on Macaulay and, and started or potentially became a man or, or in this case also a woman of the people and, and, and looked downwards, you know, rather than upwards. Um, you know, these are, in a sense, simple, straightforward ideas that I think have great potential relevance for our times. And so thinkers and intellectuals, we all all are now, whether we call ourselves that or not, because of the way in which the digital has shaped public sphere. You know, everyone who has an opinion puts it, you know, puts it up in their posts. So that's something that I think we both have to grapple with Mm -hmm. um, because the way in which then it it can also transform into very quickly into herd behavior and, and trolls and mobs, basically, and that's what the right does. The right is able to, to bring together these otherwise disparate voices. Yes. I think people on the left have to think about this, mm-hmm. but also have to, uh, I think, have to be very articulate and brave in, in as you say, um, speaking um, both truth to power, but also thinking about, well, where is the world going, right? Because it's quite clear if you look at Pakistan this summer with the floods, mm-hmm. that You know, that there's a lot of rhetoric. I mean, I was, I've been saying this a lot like, 92 Rio happened 30 years ago. I mean, it's not like we've not been talking about climate change. We have been, but the the progress is, it's literally slim to none. Um, And I think that that should compel, you know, people who have transformative visions to think more about, you know, other vehicles beyond the standard global sort of development architecture, which of course is, which is much ado about nothing, frankly, if you, if you look at like the statistics, in a sense. So that does demand sort of a more coherent political, I think, response. And that's why I, I harken back to the 60s, 70s, when that was mainstream. And I think that needs to be something that we aim for again. Um, like now, if, if we aim for it now, then there's a chance that it might happen. You know, in the, in the years ahead.
0: Great. Um, how should readers, activists, and academics approach this book? I I think
1: that I would like. I mean, it would, would, what I would like is for people to see that I'm not trying to answer every big question. I mean, there's a lot of big questions that I pose. Right. I'm not trying to answer them. I'm just insisting that we talk about these questions. Mm-hmm. And as far as academics are concerned, to take forward some of those debates, challenge what I'm saying to to, to develop the themes because I do do a lot of different things, and, and I was and perhaps don't develop that those themes. You know, I have a whole chapter on the actual forms of of accumulation and expropriation of nature in Pakistani peripheries, I and mean, that's a very empirical chapter. But there could be much more that could be developed further um some of the themes about the ethical subject or the intellectual um you know those can and, and i would hope people take that on develop those further um talk about the the imperative of going back to the universal right which of course for many decades there's been there's been this suspicion of the universal you know especially um through the postmodern turn and then postcolonial studies that's and those, are, those are pretty prickly debates. Um, I'm, I certainly don't think that they're finished and I hope people engage with them. So in a sense, it's like it's a provocation um, to engage. And that's, I, I suspect, if I had any, you know, one thing that I would hope people take from it, it's that, that I'm asking people to, to talk about these questions, the digital, how do we engage with it rather than just be users like everybody else. Um so so yeah so there's lots of stuff there to chew on, um, and then for the political activists it's it's to be more self-introspective, um, just to think about well yeah we're fighting the good fight and but resist and, and we're resisting here there and everywhere but, uh, as I write in the book a couple of times resistance is necessary but not sufficient we need to have a, a project that is not just resisting not just defending but also offers in a way that the 20th century left it, some kind of vision of the future that 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 young people can coalesce around
0: Right, thank you uh, Thank you so much for your time, it's been so wonderful to talk to you about the book I am Prashiv Tashima, your host for the New Books Network Thank you for joining us today